Boker Tove, UCC. That means good morning. If I ever want to be ridiculous like that again, you could say Boker Or. Say Boker Or. It means morning light. So, colloquial way to respond to good morning in Hebrew, if you're curious which language that was. Um, we are in this series on discipleship, and we started with this looking at what is it that disciples us, what are those things that disciple us. We looked at the process of discipleship being a process of, on the chalkboards there, imitation, this idea of following. Uh, we looked at that. We're going to talk some more about that by the time we're done later this month. Go back to this idea of imitation. Uh, Jeremiah talked to us last week about relationships, these intentional relationships. Discipleship is not something that happens. I, I think I'm okay saying this. It's not something that can happen in a vacuum. Like God and the Holy Spirit can do whatever God and the Holy Spirit wants to do, but discipleship's not something that happens in a vacuum on my own, in a corner, uh, in, in a, you know, in my house on, you know, solitaire. I don't know why I can't talk today. This is going to be a long morning. <laughs> but you get the idea. So I, wa I want to take these last two ideas, these last two weeks we've talked about, and I want to I talk some more about that and try to bring that together. So two weeks ago, we talked about the rabbinical historical context of discipleship. What is it that Jesus, as a first century rabbi, and when you say that, you've got to use a little r. They didn't have official rabbis until the destruction of the temple in AD 70. But we know that they had these traveling teachers. They had all these different people interacting with the teaching and the, the transmission of the text, of the Torah, to their young people. And so uh, they had these processes, and, and a little r rabbi was one of these traveling sages that would teach and, and mentor and, and raise up. And that was discipleship in their world. And so we looked at this process that, process that they were used to. This idea of Bet Sefer, beginning when they were, you know, five to nine years old, and how they would memorize all of Torah as they got their basic general education. Now, most students, somewhere towards the end of that, and we now know from historical evidence that Bet Sefer included boys and girls. We used to think it was mostly for boys, maybe the occasional girl, but boys and girls attended Bet Sefer. Now, somewhere towards the end of that, somewhere towards eight or nine years old, most Children were needed at home. They could kind of look into their crystal ball and see they weren't going to have this whole thing memorized well enough to move on to Bet Midrash. And so they would transition back home and begin to learn the trade or the responsibilities of their mishpacha. Say mishpacha. So they go back home and your father has a business. It's a family business and your whole extended family lives in a, in a, in a house called an insula, which is actually a Latin term, not a Hebrew one, but we get the idea. There's this big family. You, ha you have 60, 70 people, maybe 100 people sometimes living in the same home, all a part of this extended family tree. You live there with your, your aunts and your uncles and your cousins, all following this family business of the patriarch who's kind of over the top of that insula. Your, your father might have a job of, he might be the miller. He might have a, 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 food, a, 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 a stone mill. What am I, this is bad. This is bad. Your, your father, let me, let me do something I can talk about. Your father might own an olive grove, and he might have an olive press, and so you guys press everyone's olives, in, but you would have a family business. Your father might be a fisherman. It would be odd, but obviously we have that in the biblical narrative. Your father might be a fisherman. And so you go home somewhere around eight, nine years old. Maybe you even make it through Bet Sefer. Maybe you even go on to Beit Midrash from ages 10 to 13, give or take, all the way up until you can put your hand on the Paschal sacrifice, that Passover lamb in the temple. That's where you be. They didn't have bar and bat mitzvahs back then, but that was the age of transition. Once you could lay your hand on the Paschal lamb, 
in the temple, you were now a man. You had gone from being a boy to a man. For a girl, she had a different process. It went from a girl to a woman. There was this, in between that, you might even be in Beit Midrash. But most students weren't even going to get out of Beit Midrash. At some point in the process, 99.5 to 99.9% of students transition out of education to go home, learn their father's trade. In fact, we have on record, I believe it's in the Talmud, the rabbinical saying, at some point in your education you are told, you obviously love God, and you obviously love Torah, but it's time to go back home, ply your father's trade, and pray that your children will be able to do what you could not. Which sounds like, ouch! But remember, 99.9% of people have heard that at some point in there. So this is very, this is the normal experience. And in fact, you can even, let's look at another passage. We looked at Peter walking on water two weeks ago. Let's look at another passage and see how this, uh, how, we can, how we can piece this together. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee, he, this is Jesus walking, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. So what can we immediately assume about them? At some point in their process, they, they, they weren't good enough, they, just like 99.9% of everybody, they bowed out of the education process, they went home and joined their, they plied their father's trade, and now they are fishing. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they, they left their nets and followed him. And we've all sat in Bible studies where people go, I can't believe they left their nets. They just left their nets? Yes! They just got the opportunity to do what less than a fraction of 1% of the population gets. They just got a full ride to go hang out with LeBron James for the next three years. Like, yes, you drop your nets. There's somebody else fishing out there with you that's going to take care of the boat. Right? Somebody else, like their friend Jacob is like two boats over, and he dives out of the boat and starts swimming to shore, and he's like, tell my dad that I got, and his friend Jacob is just like, go man, go, I'll get the nets, don't worry about it. He, and, he, and you don't go home to pack your bags, you don't go home to say goodbye to mom and dad, you, you just go to follow the rabbi, and I promise you that night when their son didn't come home, and Jacob ran into the village to tell them what had happened to Simon and Peter. I promise you, they threw the biggest party in Bethsaida that day. Not only that, because there was two other boys from Bethsaida that we're going to read about here in the next few verses. Let me make sure my Apple watch doesn't ding at me, Pastor Jeremiah. That's an inside joke from a couple weeks ago. What's discipling me? Let's see here. Uh, where was I? Apple throwing off my preaching of the word. Uh, immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he left from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, in a boat with their father Zebedee, mending their nets. Now they're in the boat with their father. How, this is a PS, but I love to make this PS, and this really rocks people's worlds. How old are these, are these kids? Less than 13, because if they were 13... They'd be expanding their own father's business. Either their father would go do other matters that were needed and they would be fishing like Andrew or Peter, or they would be expanding the business, getting an extra boat, making the, the fisherman business for their family even bigger. These guys are less than 13 year, years old. Now keep in mind, 13 to them is about 22 to us. Like culturally, it's just different. But, but still, like we, we don't picture these guys 
being that age. My son, who's down, I was going to have him stay up here this week, and I forgot. He's 11. Like, if you've seen my son running around here, that's James and John. And you have evidence, by the way, in this text. A lot of people, like, get weirded out by this, and they're like, no way. I even had a scholar on the podcast. Uh, it's, it hasn't been released yet. We recorded with him a few weeks ago, and he has... He, He's a very good scholar, and he is of the opinion that they were not young boys, but he is definitely in the minority on that opinion. But there, there's this evidence in the text. You remember the story where Peter, um, they come to Peter, and they're like, does your rabbi pay taxes? And he's like, yes. And he walks into the house, and Jesus is like, so, I pay taxes, Peter? And he's like, uh. <laughs> and they have this conversation, and then Jesus says, go throw a line into the water and catch a fish, and in the fish will be a two drachma coin, which you're like, I don't even know what that's about. Good luck. I have no idea. To this day, I have no idea what that is about. I've tried to find it in the text. I cannot find it anywhere. I have no idea what the two drachma coin is. But he says, for your tax and mine. But as a rabbi, he's legally responsible. According to Roman and Jewish law, the only relationship that superseded a parent and a child was a rabbi and a disciple. So he's responsible for all 12 disciples. So he'd have to pay 13 people's tax legally. But he only says Peter and him. That tells me Peter is the only one in the Havra that's over 18 years old. That's when you would have started paying the tax on the culture. Everybody else, and everybody's like, but Matthew's a tax collector. Yes, because Rome preyed on younger people that they could manipulate and coerce to do the work of tax collection. Anyway, that's a total PS and I just wasted time minutes. But nevertheless... <laughs> Now, but, but here's, again, you see this. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. You see the context of discipleship bearing itself out in this story. Now, if you were paying attention two weeks ago, you may have left church going, hey, wait a minute. If that's what rabbinical discipleship was, is Marty suggesting that only less than 1% who do discipleship this way that's, that's all discipleship is. And I want to talk about that this morning. So I want to hit pause on that question, and I do want to make one observation here. There's two extremes that I want to encourage us when we talk about discipleship to try to avoid. Let me talk about the first extreme first. This idea that discipleship is just kind of this nebulous spiritual cloud, like the spiritual waters we swim in as a believer in Jesus. Like we talk about discipleship like it's just spiritual growth, right? Discipleship is just kind of like maturing spiritually. The stuff that just kind of happens as I follow Jesus, which is good. Put that in your notes. I think we should mature spiritually. <laughs> but that's not discipleship. It's a part of what should happen in the process of discipleship. But discipleship is something bigger than that. Does that make sense? Okay. So there's this idea that discipleship is 7 a.m. on Thursday mornings at Starbucks. We should be meeting at Thursday mornings at 7 a.m. Please don't stop. Please don't go to your Thursday morning 7 a.m. meeting and be like, I can't do this anymore. This is bad. No, it's good. But I think looking at that and saying that's discipleship, we ought to pause just a moment. I've been involved in two megachurches over the last 20 years, and we talked about discipleship as small group assimilation. Nobody laughed at that, but getting people involved in small groups. We're just doing discipleship like Jesus was. <laughs> Jesus was not running a small group ministry. Does that make sense? 
Like there's an extreme of discipleship's just kind of like this nebulous. Okay, let, now let's, let's put a pause on that conversation and keep going through here. If we were to look at this in the original context, if we had the Hebrew, it would be so much more interesting because the Hebrew can make a distinction that would be helpful for us in this conversation. Let me show you. In the Hebrew, there are two words. There's a word that's, that, that is lamud. Say lamud. And that means student. You could, you could go sit at the feet of Jesus every day, Monday through Friday for class, and you would be a lamud. Plural would be lemudim. Technically, right now, you're all lemudim right now. You're students. Does that make sense? You can be completely devoted students. Listen to me. How many people love the Lord their God with all their heart, all their soul, all their might, and were limudim? Say 99.9% of everybody who followed God in their culture. This is not like somebody's better than the other. It's just that somebody has a particular calling, a different call in their culture. They're called Talmud. So there's a Lamud, which is a student. But a Talmud is somebody who literally goes to live with the rabbi for the next three to five years. You go where he goes. You do what he does. You eat where he, what he eats. You sleep where he sleeps. You follow him 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. That's a Talmud. If you want to make it feminine, by the way, you say Talmudah. Say Talmudah. If you have a group of male disciples or mixed gender, it would be Talmudim. If you have a group of just female disciples, which would be awesome, it would be Talmudot. Fun little language studies with Marty this morning. Here's the problem. Your New Testament is written in which language? And Matthew wasn't originally, gosh dang it. We know that from church historians, and I'm a big believer that Matthew was written in Hebrew originally, and the Greek manuscript we have is all kinds of jacked up. But nevertheless, that's Marty's personal opinion. I wish we had the Hebrew version, because I would love to know if Matthew did write it in Hebrew, what he wrote. It does not mean he would have distinguished, but he could have in the Hebrew. I'll show you why that's important here in a moment. In the Greek, you have one word for both. It's methetes. Say methetes. I've had three different friends get methetes in Greek tattooed on their forearm right here. Yes, methetes. <laughs> Student or disciple. So the problem in the Greek is you can't distinguish. I can have a group of students and they're methetes. I can have a group of Talmudim and they're methetes. Does that make sense? Here's where this could be important. And I'm going to let Kent talk about this in a few weeks. I'm not going to spend time here. But Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make methetes. And I don't know what he's talking about. I wish I did, I, and I won't, and that's okay. Apparently it's not important because the Holy Spirit would have helped us out. So Marty's making a much to do about nothing, much ado about nothing. I don't even know how to say that phrase. Okay? I don't know. Was he saying go make Talmudim, or was he saying go make students? I don't know. We can all wrestle with this, but I wish I had the Hebrew manuscript. Ah, thank you, Dane. Okay, so here, here's, here's where it also becomes relevant. Uh, Paul's missionary journeys, yes? Uh, first missionary journey, Paul goes from Antioch to Cyprus. He heads north to Perga, Iconium, Lystra, Derby, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, Antioch. He's nowhere, he's at none of those locations for longer than two weeks. Two weeks, two weeks, two weeks, two weeks, two weeks. He goes all the way through that whole circuit. How many methetes does he have? 
Yeah, it's hard to talk about, right? How many limudim does he have? Lots. Lots of people show up. Lots of people believe. Lots of people. He even has converts. <laughs> yes. All the Christians said, amen. <laughs> Baptizing people. So he's got converts. He's got students. How many Talmudim does he have? Say zero. How are we going to know? We're going to know. How are we going to know? What's that? They go, they're going to physically go with him. They're going to literally follow him. But on the first missionary journey, he has zero house churches, we could say. I'm using that term like loosely. But you can't plant a Christian community in two weeks. Like, I, we've got some great church planting strategies in the world, but you can't do that in two weeks. I don't care how great you are. You can go have some great conversations. You can spread the euangelion, the gospel. You can do all kinds of... But you ain't going to plant a house church or make disciples in two weeks. The whole time, by the way, what is Paul saying? Where does Paul want to go if you know your New Testament? Boy, he wants to go somewhere. He is obsessed with going to Rome. I want to go to Rome. I want to go to Rome, but God won't let me. I want to go to Rome, but God, the Holy Spirit kept me from going. I want to go to Rome. I want to go to Rome. I want to go. He writes a letter to Rome saying, I keep wanting to come to you, but God won't let me come to you. I will come to you soon, but God keeps preventing me. Paul wants to go to Rome. Doesn't go to Rome. God won't let him. Second missionary journey. He stays in Corinth for two years. Plants a house church. He has how many disciples after his second missionary journey? At least three, some would say four. Timothy, Aquila, Priscilla, and Apollos. They are literally going with him. They travel with him. They are with him in Corinth. They do business together. They work together. They live together. They do ministry together. They go with him to Ephesus. They are traveling with him. Do you see the difference? It's just methetes in the Greek. But in the book of Acts, you can see which ones are Talmudim and which ones are Limudim. Does that make sense? And you're like, okay, maybe you're making too big of a deal. Okay, but, but here's the thing. Third missionary journey. Paul goes and plants multiple house churches because now he's learned how to like stay somewhere for a while. And Luke says in Acts 17, 18, that Paul now has about 12 disciples because the Holy Spirit can't remember. Thank you for laughing at that. Come on, inspired Holy Spirit. Is it 7, 9, 11, 13, or 12? Why is, why is Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit, like about 12? Because he's starting to look like somebody we know. Named Jesus. Luke wants you to know he's now got disciples, and over the course of his first missionary journey, second missionary journey, third missionary journey, he finally now looks like Jesus. And do you know what the next story is two paragraphs later? God shows up and says, Paul, you want to go to Rome? Tell me that discipleship doesn't matter to God. Tell me he's not serious about this thing we're talking about called discipleship. Tell me that God's not like church planning is great, but there's also this other thing that's also great. I even told you to do it before I left. So there's this other extreme. You see, I came back from Israel and Turkey, and it's what drove me into campus ministry. I didn't have any, I, I, I didn't share the heart that this church has for the college campus. I didn't care about the college campus. I got into campus ministry like all backwards. And now I have a heart for the campus 
because I spent 10 years, 12 years in the ministry, and now, but I got, I got into it all weird, and now I don't even know how I got to be president of the organization, because I was the worst poster child ever. But I got into campus ministry because I wanted to experiment with this method. I wanted to look at people and say, hey, come follow me. Come spend time with me seven, seven days a week, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. And so we got into campus ministry, and I moved to Moscow, Idaho, and we rented out an apartment, and then right across the way, we rented out another apartment to put students in. Because certain boundaries were good, like they needed to be in another apartment. <laughs> I wasn't going to be that much like Jesus. Even I'm going to draw my line. But they were going to eat with us, and they were going to celebrate with us, and they were going to play with us, and they were going to, that we were going to do life together. And we got, we got up every morning, we did disciplines together, we memorized our texts together, and we, we worked together, and they raised money to do campus ministry, just like we literally did life the same all the time. We, we lived life together, because I wanted to be as close to Jesus as I could possibly. It's still, to this day, the most meaningful ministry I've ever done. No matter how many people are listening to a podcast, that's got nothing on the years that I spent pouring into young people as, like, actual Talmudim. Now, okay, is Marty saying that that's the only thing? No, no, no. So let's talk about the other extreme that I want to avoid. The other extreme that I want to avoid is that's the only thing that discipleship can look like. That discipleship has to look like this one weird methodological approach. Methodological. See how I'm talking this morning? Does that make sense? There are these two extremes. Somewhere in between, discipleship's just the nebulous, esoteric water I swim in spiritually, to the other extreme of discipleship only looks like 24-7, 365 days a year, commitment to live life together. Somewhere in between these two extremes is a really healthy conversation to have. Here's the word I want to talk about today, intentionality. Last week... Uh, Jeremiah talked to us about this card. Did anybody take their card home and put it where Jeremiah told them to put it? Did you? Okay, good. One person said yes. Good job, Jeremiah. <laughs> changing, changing the life of UCC one life at a time. So we have this card that he talked about last week where he talked about everybody, and he had these seven relationships on the back, but everybody needs a Barnabas, everybody needs a Timothy, everybody needs a Silas. And so we, we had this conversation, and on the back there are these seven relationships that I love. And I kind of knew where he was headed with this when he handed these cards out because we've chatted before. It, and, I, and I sat down and I went, oh no, this is not going to be good for me. I'm not going to have people in all these categories. And I went through and I was like very encouraged. I don't know if any of you were as well. I actually do have people in these categories. And they would know they're in this category. I loved what he said at one point. Like Timothys need to know they're Timothys. Like they can't be secret Timothys. Like a Timothy actually has to know they're your Timothy and have said yes to you, or it's just a weird relationship. <laughs> you can't be like secretly discipling somebody, right? I mean, you can, but not, not like, in the, there's, a, there's an intentionality to all these relationships. Like I have, I have a couple Ananiases in my life. The two people that probably led me to what I would call faith. They, and they know who they are. Um, my mom and Jim Hoffman. I have Barnabases. I have Silas's. I have Apollos. The person has a different voice from yours. Christians in other places. I think about my buddy Josh or my friend Adam who was here just two weeks ago. We're doing ministry together. They're in one of those mega churches I used to work with and they just do it differently than I do. But their relationship with me is super important because if not, I get a little weird and culty. 
Thank you for laughing at that. Like, Apollos' relationships are so important. All these relationships are. Epaphroditus, Peter's, Timothy's. Those relationships are so... There's an intentionality to these relationships. And that's what makes discipleship happen. And do you see how that conversation is somewhere in between these two extremes? Have you built those relationships into your life? Do you have them? And I love that there's relationships that are here. I'm probably going to do this wrong. There's relationships that are here, and there's relationships that are here. Does that make sense? There's like these peer, horizontal relationships. There's relationships that are shaping me, and there's relationships where I'm shaping others. And of course, those lines are all kinds of blurry. But there's all of these intentional relationships. I, I'll close with this. I can remember the first week I came here to UCC. And I can tell you the long story. I'm going to try to tell you the short one. The first week I came here, I was just coming to check out. We were here for an all-staff conference or something, a prayer journey. I can't remember what we were here for. And everybody else was going to one of the other Christian churches in town. And I wanted to come to this weird one I had heard about. <laughs> this unicorn Christian church on the edge of the college campus. And so I came down here with a good friend, Jim, and we showed up, and uh, I don't think I had a chance to meet Mandy yet. She was here, and we met her over there in the coffee shop area, and we sat down, and we just kind of told her who we were and why we were here, and she talked to us for about two sentences and just started to just weep. And she said it was like a really hard morning that morning. And so we were asked her, this, you, know, you know, what was going on, and she said, this is such a transient place. And she had just gotten word that morning that two more people were on their way to the next chapter. Does anybody know what this is like here at UCC? Everybody that's been here for a long time is nodding. This, this is a transient place. And yes, a lot of it's driven by the university. You have college students that are coming here. You have faculty and staff. You have coaching staff. You have all kinds of people that come through this area and they're here for a season and then they go on to the next chapter. And I thought about that as I was preparing for that message this morning. As Jeremiah comes with a passion to work with us, with a passion for discipleship. What a, what, what a great thing for this place to devote itself to. You're going to have people here for three, four years and they're going to move on. Sounds like a perfect time frame to disciple people and send them out to make an impact on the world. Does that make sense? What, what a... What a beautiful place to have intentional relationships with people, younger than you, older than you, same age, whatever. Have intentional relationships, Timothy's and Silas's and Epaphroditus's. Really, have fun telling somebody that they're your Epaphroditus. <laughs> that would be great. Um, I want to hear what their response is to that. You're my Epaphroditus. Make sure you have those Apollos. That, like, if we started to build these relationships intentionally, and of course it will break our heart as people. If, if it doesn't, then your relationship wasn't worth anything to begin with. If people can just come and go and leave and you're like, ah, well then the relationship never meant anything in the first place. So of course it will break our heart, but it will break our heart with a purpose. Just think about the impact you could have on lives that come through here. Like, how many people have you met that talked about that one church I went to for four years in Cincinnati? I mean, I don't know if I said that, but you get the idea. Like, I've met people all the time. There was this one season of my life that shaped me forever. That could be this place. That could be what this place is. So, I love that. And I pray that that's the discipleship water that we swim in. 
something that's intentional, something that we don't think we're just going to stumble into naturally. It's not just soil that's going to, we've got to cultivate this. We've got to plant particular seeds and build particular relationships so that the work of discipleship and the, and the soil of the gospel can bear a particular kind of fruit. And then God gets to reap his harvest and take it wherever he wants to. Amen? Let's pray. God, would you um, just remind us this morning, uh, there, there's a lot of water that we swim in, and it's, it's good, it's beautiful. We, we want to swim in the water of spiritual formation. We, we want to swim in the waters of maturity, um, all of this just being the ocean of your grace and your love and salvation and all of these things that we love to talk about. But then there's this other stuff that you invite us to, you call us to, you commission us. You commission us to do. And those things are not going to be just happenstance water we swim in. Those are going to be things we're going to have to engage. We're going to have to engage those things with a particular level of intentionality. And, and God, it doesn't have to be fast, or it doesn't have to like blow the doors off the place, but, but little seeds planted with great intentionality, those are the kind of things that I think we hear you asking for, because you can, you can bear some incredible fruit with a little bit of intentional faithfulness. I, I pray you'd keep us, I, I pray you'd keep us from from two other extremes, God, the extreme of, of, of apathy or, or just disengagement and just saying no, or should I say not saying yes to the opportunities. I also pray there's a whole other group of us that will struggle with the other extreme of, of trying to go too hard, doing too much, and sabotaging those efforts as well. So would you speak to us, whisper to us, guide us and direct us with every passing month or semester every opportunity, every volunteer sign-up that will come from the coffee shop, every opportunity to listen and ask, is this the opportunity to build some kind of intentional relationship? Uh, every opportunity to help make food for a youth group gathering, to serve on a committee, a commission, here at UCC, or, or to do something completely outside these four walls at the places that we live and we work and we serve and so many other places out in the world where you lay on our hearts some obvious thing that you're inviting us to do. Give us, give us the pause and discernment to really make sure we're hearing and listening for that still small voice, that whisper telling us which way to go, to the right or to the left, that we would say yes and we're going to make a ton of mistakes, we know that. But would we say yes as often as we are able to the thing that you invite us to do? God, we love you. Uh, we're, we're privileged, inspired, honored to be a part of this kingdom project that you're up to. Thanks for making disciples. Thanks for showing us how you made disciples. And maybe we'd have the courage to ask what it looks like for us. God, we love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.